please turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. My name is Chris. Welcome. I'm one of the pastors here at MetroLife Church. If this is your first time visiting with us today, I just wanted to say thank you for being here. Uh, I also want to let you know that I, I'm being flagged down as if I've forgotten something because that is my norm. Uh, but we have fourth through sixth grade class that actually begins right now. Uh, it's going to be happening over in our children's ministry hallway. Uh, for those who are in fourth through sixth grade, if you're a guest, uh, your children can go there. They're going to go into this hallway and then they're going to come back in here during the close of worship today. But uh, I'm excited for what's going on in that class, in that time with our fourth through sixth graders. But let's dive into God's word together today. I'm excited for this passage but I'm also a bit nervous about it, and, and let me just explain why. I'm excited for this passage because I think it is universally applicable to us as a church. It's universally applicable to us as a church in this way, that uh, a lot of times when we're thinking through the application of our sermons, we're trying to think like, how do we kind of dive into what's going on in the life of the church or in, in particular families or in those who are single here? Uh, as you're walking through different seasons and stages of life, maybe the, the different context that God has called you to, to be on mission, the, the various way, uh, variety of ways that our, our families are, are kind of knit together. And I feel like this morning there's not a single aspect of that that escapes the importance of this passage for us as followers of Jesus today. Now, there's a way to get everybody listening, isn't it? But I'm nervous about it too, and here's why. I'm nervous that we walk out of here with this thought that it, we have to accomplish this in our own efforts. And that we're supposed to just be pumped up to live love's expression to the fullest in its perfection as if that is up to us. And it hasn't been displayed for us. And it isn't freely given to us. I'm afraid that what will happen today is that we'll walk out of here with this sense of, I know what I'm supposed to do. Now, if only I were good enough to do it. And all of a sudden, this moralism or this legalism or, or some higher form of spirituality will start to, to creep in and take root in our hearts. And so that's what I'm nervous about. I'm glad that I say that at the outset because I, I want us to listen intently for where the effort is placed in the midst of this. Where the effort is placed in the midst of this. And I, and I want us in our hearts to rightly place our effort in, in doing this, turning to Jesus to see him rightly this morning. So that's our prayer as we go into this passage. As a reminder, we're in 1 Corinthians 13. Many would know this as, as kind of a, an oft-quoted passage in wedding ceremonies or different things like that. And, and this morning, you certainly will hear why that is to be the case. I think this is dangerous if we think of this as, as vows to one another because of how often we will break them. Uh, I, I always think about, about that. Uh, anytime that we're doing premaritals and, some, and a, a bride and groom want to write their own vows, we tell them, that's great. I would like to review those vows before you say them in front of the church because I don't want you lying in front of everybody. Because we'll say some amazing and poetic and untrue things to one another in those contexts at times. And we realize that it's because we do fall short. It is because we need a Savior. And so Paul starts off this morning with a 15-point sermon. So would you turn your attention with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm going to begin reading in verse 4 and go through verse 7. Love is patient and kind. 
Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Anybody failing yet? It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is patient. What does it look like in the context of spiritual gifts? I mean, that, that's what Paul's talking about here. And yet we see how it will overflow into our relationships with, with one another. We see how it will overflow into the context of, of shaping the culture of a local church. We see how it would overflow into the context of community groups and, and time together in ministry teams or in different settings like that. We see how this can overflow into relationships with our friends, with our spouses, with our coworkers. And Paul begins here when he's talking about the divine love that we have received and what that looks like to be expressed through our lives. The divine love that we received is patient. In the midst of suffering, love faces with endurance. Now, I said that this is in the context of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 are explicitly talking about spiritual gifts in the life of the local church. And that's the series that we're in the midst of, the Spirit-filled church. What does it look like to be a Spirit-filled church? And, and I think that what Paul's point throughout this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is this. A Spirit-filled church will be a loving church. And a loving church looks like this, enduring with one another in the face of suffering. Enduring with one another in the face of suffering. Perhaps Paul is calling us to be slow in reacting in some kind of judgmental way when someone uses a gift in an embarrassing or a poor way. Perhaps he's, he's calling us to be ones to be patient and not rushing to criticize one another. Love is patient. Love is kind. You know, a genuine love for one another is going to cultivate feelings or affections of tenderheartedness for one another and toward others. It's interesting that as we go through these, we're going to see how some of them are, are what's happening internally as we process what we're seeing in others. And others are going to be externally as we interact with others. But as it, as it relates to spiritual gifts, I think you're going to make more headway in conversations with those who might be using the spiritual gifts with kindness rather than harshness, with affirming words for one another rather than condemning words for one another. Love is kind, love is patient, love does not envy. It's going to, it's going to rejoice in the success of others. You know, we're going to have a, a time of ministry actually at the close of the sermon today. There's a couple of prophetic words, and, and now I found out that there's actually some others that are just confirming what it is that, that God has in store for us. And I share that with you, one, to kind of build this sense of expectation. I think God has something for us as a church today. But, you know, there's a barrier that we can put up where we're just going to sit there and just be like, why doesn't God use me in that way? And all of a sudden, what we're listening to is more of the lies of the enemy in our own head rather than listening to the one who wants to minister to us through the gifts of grace that he's given. We put up these barriers and these walls for one another where we don't even receive from the Lord what he has for us. Because we're listening to voices that are lying to us in the midst of his ministry to his people, his creation. His nearness to us 
it's devastating when we think about the effects of not being a loving church. Love does not envy. It doesn't boast. Now, this is the opposite of envy, isn't it? It's not saying that, that I, I covet what somebody else has and I resent them for having that. No, when we're boasting, we're saying, look at what I've got. Pay attention to this. Pay attention to me. We're bragging about what we have and we're actually belittling others because of what they don't have. Love doesn't boast. It's not arrogant or puffed up. Paul has in mind those who are kind of not just calling attention to themselves, but they kind of walk like it. They walk around like it, puffed up. They're strutting around because they've got a, a spiritual gift that might draw more attention. They've got a spiritual gift that might cause a stir. You wouldn't understand my spiritual gift. God hasn't burdened you with this gift. That's the type of language of those that walk around who are arrogant or puffed up. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, What do you have that you haven't received? And when you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Love is not arrogant or puffed up. It's not rude. It's not rude. It's not insisting on using your gift in your way and disregarding the input of others, not receiving from the gifts of others as well. There's this interdependency of the gifts, isn't there? There's this thing that happens when you put the gifts together in the context of something like a community group. And all of a sudden, they're not all just your gift. And all of a sudden, you get to receive from the gifts of others. And what does it do? Well, it matures you in the use of that gift. It matures you, and sometimes it limits you, and it, it kind of tampers what it is that you would maybe want to do in and of yourself. And we may be thinking of like miraculous gifts in this moment where it's just like you're going to walk around and just heal everybody. That's, that's not even actually what I'm talking about. What about a gift of compassion? Compassion is a gift of the Spirit. But if we have a compassionate community group, it may always have this sense of feeling the weight for others and the empathy for others and never actually taking the step to serve others. There is an inter interdependency of the spiritual gifts within the life of the church that both feels the weight of the things that others are walking through and moves toward them to serve them practically in their need. That's the interdependency of the gifts. And both are a beautiful expression of the love of Christ, aren't they? Love does not insist on its own way. It defers. It defers to others. It, it thinks first about what is going to serve them best. How is it that they would receive from this gift, whatever it is? You might say it this way, that in love, not insisting on its own way, it takes the low road. It, it's going to be second rather than first. It prompts you to always be asking questions rather than speaking and spewing your gifts around to the world maybe it wonders things like how might my gift be used to promote others rather than myself it's not insisting on its own way it might be saying how do how can this gift be used to affirm or praise and promote someone else other than me love is not irritable now some of your translations may say this it's not easily angered i think either one of those works well but but genuine christian love divine love agape love as it's defined in this passage doesn't lie in wait to take offense at what somebody says. You're not just sitting there with a hair trigger of, I knew you were going to say it that way. That's not, that's not right. It's not irritable. 
It's not easily angered. Love is not resentful. Perhaps your translations say it this way, love keeps no record of wrongs, keeps no list. How easy it would be to use so many different illustrations right here, and yet here's the one I've chosen. Every year for Danny Jones' birthday, my wife makes him banana pudding. He loves it, as you might have just heard. He loves it. He hasn't gotten his banana pudding yet this year. But Danny hasn't mentioned that. We were on vacation. <laughs> listen at it. Listen at it. Everybody trying to clear the deck now. Chris is using it as illustration. Let's just make sure the church knows everything's all right. <laughs> I'm keeping record of that, and here's why. Because that means I get gluten-free banana pudding too, right? And so I am keeping record. And the other day we were out at the store, and I said, hey, I just want to remind you, you haven't given Danny his birthday banana pudding yet. And she said, oh, that's right. And I said, because I too would like some banana pudding, right? But love doesn't do that. I mean, this is, this is a funny illustration that I can use, right? But love doesn't keep a record of wrongs as a way to stack evidence against our brothers and sisters, our family or our spouses. It's not keeping a record of wrong. Love rejoices with the truth. A person who is motivated by genuine love is going to to look for opportunities. It rejoices in the truth. In other words, we are catching each other doing the right things. I believe I skipped one. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. You ever know people that just love it when somebody else falls? It's gross. In the life of the church, it's, it's gross. It's one of those things that's like, that just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit to have somebody in the church that's just like, you know, I'm just here waiting for that leader to fall. I'm just here watching for them to do this the wrong way. No, it, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Back to, the, back to the original list. Love bears all things. Perhaps your Bible says that it always endures. What is, it, what is Paul telling us there? Love, agape love, guards against being excessively self-defensive. It's always looking at things in terms of how it's going to affect us. Genuine love empowers a person to endure the worst of circumstances. Now, I want to be careful here. I think it's right for us to realize that love draws healthy boundaries. What we are talking about here is enduring in your faith in the most difficult of circumstances. This does not mean that there aren't consequences for others who wrong us. I want to be mindful here of those that, that, can, that can hear a passage like this and, and misunderstand what I might be saying. And I just want to speak to those lies now. We are not saying return to an abuser. What we are saying is that your faith can endure no matter what you face in this life. Love believes all things. I wanted to put that note there because I think this is an important place where there can be some misapplication of these passages. 
there can be a misapplication of these passages because some of your translations may read that love always trusts. Paul isn't telling us to be gullible or naive. There are some things we must always disbelieve. Paul is calling us out of love to give people the benefit of the doubt until all other facts are known. Paul is calling us to respond in love, not react out of disbelief. To respond in love, not react out of disbelief. Jumping to premature conclusions that that they're motivated by something that might be a selfish concern. that, That they are the one who is always in error, so you must be this time as well. Love always hopes. Perhaps you're in one of those relationships or an environment where you are enduring some form of harm or abuse. Perhaps you've been in in an environment where you've been the beneficiary of somebody not being good at the use of their gifts. Perhaps prophetic words have had a dramatic effect on your life in the past, and it's caused you to do things that you look back at and you say, why in the world would I have done that? And why in the world am I in a church now that's preaching about prophecy and preaching about miraculous things and healings? I don't want to be hurt like that again. Love always Because our hope is not in this life. It's what allows us and empowers us to give someone a second or third or fourth chance. Looking for the best in people. Conceding the worst when the evidence is overwhelming to it. Love hopes in the world to come. And it perseveres. Some translations may say it better than the ESV where it says, Love always endures christian love endures or perseveres because the mind and heart that are shaped by love knows that god causes all things to work together for the good of those who love god and are called according to his purpose god uses all of those things that you're walking through the highs and the lows the glory and the garbage of life he uses all of those things to shape and mold you into the image of jesus christ And that includes those painful and distressing things that can lead to despair and disappointment. It includes those things. God's power and his will are large enough and powerful enough and overwhelming enough and good enough to include all of those things in life. Seven of these 15 At the beginning, at the end of the list, they tell us what love is as opposed to what love is not. They're calling us up to something. So when we're praying for others, it it can be helpful to take these qualities in prayer and ask God to help express that kind of love, hopeful, protecting, patient to our friends and family, colleagues, and fellow church members. The other eight qualities tell us what love is not. It's not envious, boastful, proud, dishonoring, self-seeking, easily angered. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs or delight in evil. Now, it can, it can be helpful to audit our relationships in light of that list. But, but I want to just take a moment right now, rather than trying to think through every relational dynamic that you're working through, 
Perhaps you're having an experience kind of like me this, this last couple of weeks in study where as I'm going through this list, I'm like, oh, that's good. Th- that must be the thing that God's after in my heart. And then come back the next day later and it's a different thing. It's like, oh, that's good. That's probably the thing God's after in my heart. And a couple days later as I'm studying again, I come back, oh, that's so good. Maybe that's the thing that God's after in my heart. And realizing that God's after all those things in my heart. He's after all of those things in your heart as well. And so there's really none of us that escape in this moment of application. And so I just want us to take a moment right here. We're just going to pause right here and just kind of do a self-audit of these 15 things that we've just heard. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things hopes all things, and endures all things. What's the one the Holy Spirit is after in you today? What is the one that's just going to kind of continue to roll about in your mind throughout the rest of the day? What's the one that the Holy Spirit is is wanting to kind of take from your ears and, and pierce your heart with it and say, this is the one that I'm after in you This is the one that's going to cause breakthrough in that relationship. This is the one that's going to help you to overcome this thing, this what seems like a relational hurdle with this other person. What is the one that the Holy Spirit is after you? What about your average week? How can you make sure that you're prioritizing love over all things? Are are you envious of any friends or colleagues and what they're walking through in life right now? Are there ways that with your spouse or with your friends that you're dishonoring them? Are you easily angered by your children? Are you keeping a record of your parents' wrongs? Are you delighting in evil with your friends? You know, the answer to all of these questions, just one of them, let alone all of them, is, Lord, help me to love others as you've loved me. See, it's easy to begin to have our eyes open to ways that we can love others well with the love that we've been so freely given. That's why we cry out when we walk away from this passage, Lord, help me to love. But, but how is it that we get there? How is it that we get there? How do we grow in this divine love that we're called to express to those around us? It would be easy just to to end here and just say, now go do it to the glory of God. Amen. But how? We know what it is that we're called to do now, but, but how is it that we get there? I think that we can already begin to think of ways that God will use our growth in any of these areas, let alone all of these areas, to strengthen our witness, to to increase our testimony before others. Our growth in loving others will lead to healthier relationships in any context. I mean, what one of those things don't any of us want? I don't know anybody that came in here today and just said, you know, I think at the end of the sermon I would really love this if my relationships are less healthy. That sounds like a toxic church. I would really love to walk away from today and just have this sense of like, I need to be better so that God can use me. That sounds like a false gospel. I think that as we continue to see throughout our passage today, we're going to see how it is that love becomes the foundation for the use of our spiritual gifts and what that leads to in turn is spiritual maturity because verses 8 through 12 are going to show us 
that if we focus on temporary things, that's going to lead to immaturity. Let's read together in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I just want to draw our attention to two two phrases that are used here that I think are going to increase in significance as we kind of look through these verses together. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Oftentimes, people will use this verse to actually say that the gifts have ended for today because the perfect has come in Jesus Christ. I don't believe that that's Paul's point here because of his language in the surrounding verses where he talks about our growth and maturity and putting away childish things. That there's a partial that will pass away because he's also speaking in the present tense. Prophecies will pass away in that day. And he also says, now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. See, Paul here is explaining that spiritual gifts are not themselves a sign of spiritual maturity. And this is where I think it just begins to, the gospel begins to relieve the pressure of us having to be something or do something or accomplish something so we might receive something. No, the gospel calls us to freely receive by grace alone. Freely received by the grace of God alone. Spiritual gifts are not the embodiment of perfection. In other words, if, if you have the thought of like, maybe someday I'll be mature enough to be able to receive a spiritual gift. No, that's not at all what Paul is saying. Actually, Paul is saying they've received spiritual gifts and they're still immature. Why? Because they're not loving one another. They're growing in these 15 areas that Paul is preaching against. And they're, they're growing in those areas. They're, they're walking around boastful about the spiritual gifts that they have. Look at the perfection that I've received. And they're walking around boasting in that rather than boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. See, the Corinthians had fallen into the trap of believing that these gifts were the indication that they had truly arrived. They'd fallen into a trap. So because these gifts had come, perfection must have come as well. And Paul says, no, in this paragraph. No, when perfection comes, these things that you you think are equal to perfection, they're going to go away. There's not going to be a need to prophesy. When we are in the presence of the prophet, priest, and king, there will be no need for that. The things that you're using for milestones of a form of spiritual wholeness, they're going to disappear entirely. They're going to go away. Alistair Begg says it this way. He says, the gifts are for now and they are imperfect. Where there are prophecies, they're going to cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. The spiritual gifts are not the embodiment of of spiritual 
perfection or spiritual maturity. But we don't disengage with spiritual maturity. And I want us to hear this carefully. That doesn't just mean that we just sit around and just go, that's great, I can be mature in heaven so I can be immature in this life. No, that's not Paul's point either. Paul wants us to understand that spiritual maturity is not eternal perfection. See, when the Bible uses the idea of perfection for heaven, and when Paul speaks about maturity, those are two different things. Heaven is heaven. That is for us in the future. But spiritual maturity is our call now. The Corinthians were kind of suggesting that heaven is now. As displayed in the spiritual gifts and their use of them. But Paul's helping them to understand that they actually had, in fact, a different problem, and their problem was spiritual maturity. They were babyish in their understanding of things. And Paul says to them, what, what we need to be looking for is the kind of spiritual fullness which is expressed in maturity. Now, you can think about this in, in terms of relational implications for the unity in the church. I mean, that, that was one of Paul's main points in writing to the church in Corinth throughout this entire letter was unity in the church. But he's saying, relationally, what this means is that you need to have maturity in the way that you express spiritual gifts in a humble way that brings glory to God rather than drawing attention to yourself. But I think it's important to note that in the context of church, do we realize that maturity is also the ability to receive spiritual gifts from others as well? See, it's not just about how it is that we give it's about how we receive as well maturity is the ability to receive spiritual gifts from others even as they're learning about spiritual gifts you know one thought i've had here throughout the week is that the use of the gifts without love is an immature use of the gifts that seems to be paul's clearest point here use of the gifts without love is an immature immature use of the gifts but can i also offer for our consideration this morning this that those who are have received the divine love of jesus christ those who are following him in in the ways that we live our lives that that means that how it is that our lives declare the that he is the lord of our life we are disciples of jesus christ and, you know, I think at times we, we can get to this word of discipleship and all of a sudden think, now, how are you pivoting from talking about spiritual gifts to discipleship? I think they're the same thing. See, too often we'll, we'll kind of parse it out where it's like, well, in discipleship, what you need to do is you need to learn how to have spiritual disciplines. And then when you have spiritual disciplines, you're going to have some spiritual fruit. And then once you have some spiritual fruit, well, then you can receive some spiritual gifts. As if it's this, like, ladder or pyramid scheme within our faith. See, all of those things are intended to point to this, our maturity as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. So the world would look at us and say, they follow Jesus. They're not parsed out in some way. There's not some, some path that we're supposed to follow. Clearly because in Corinth they weren't paying any attention to spiritual disciplines. They weren't paying any attention to spiritual fruit and they had received spiritual gifts. And Paul's not backfilling here like, wow, you guys have really gone out of order. No, he's saying all of these things together are intended to bring a maturity to the person and thus the church. 
And so what I'm saying this morning is this, that spiritual gifts can lead to maturity even though they are not themselves the sign of maturity. See, they provide additional ways to grow in the use of spiritual disciplines. Spiritual gifts allow for this kind of cornucopia of spiritual fruit in our lives when we allow for it by receiving them freely and using them for God's glory. Imagine what can happen. Perhaps you're in this place where you feel like you're just in this rut spiritually. And you're like, yeah, I mean, I'm having devotions. And, you know, when I interact with friends, I, I hear about spiritual fruit. And it just seems like I'm just kind of at this plateau. Well, can I ask you a question? Are you using the gifts of the Spirit that God has given you? Because you know what's going to shatter that plateau? Stepping out in faith and using the gifts that God's given you. You you know what's going to give you new opportunities to grow in humility? Do you know what's going to give you new opportunities to grow in kindness and love? Do you know what's going to give you new opportunities to grow in self-control? Do you know what's going to give you new opportunities to, to have the Scripture come to life in you? To step out in faith and use the gifts that God has given you. And to see it as a part of our discipleship. To see it as a part of a a healthy Christian life. A follower who is being brought to spiritual maturity. See, if we focus on the temporary nature of prophecy, tongues, knowledge, what that's going to lead to is an immaturity because we're not going to grow in our love of God and we're not going to grow in our love for others. But see, Paul doesn't leave us there. Paul tells us that there is something else that we can actually fix our eyes on And he tells us in verse 13 to focus on the eternal love of Christ that leads to maturity. Very simply, this last verse in 1 Corinthians 13 says this, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now I want to just be clear here, we've been talking about the spiritual gifts, and so this faith that Paul is talking about is is not a gift of faith. This is actually the saving faith that we have in Jesus Christ. By faith alone are we saved. Through grace alone. We are saved in Christ alone. So this is not the gift of faith that says, I have the gift of faith to step out and use this gift to pray for you. Or I have the gift of faith to to speak this word. No, this is saving faith. This is a faith that says, I trust in nothing else. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the faith that he's talking about here. That will remain for eternity. There will never come a point where we're in heaven and all of a sudden it's like, thanks for the faith to get me in. Now I'm going to live my life. This is all our hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Faith remains. His point's really simple. Spiritual gifts are for this life and this life only. So don't be so focused on them that we forget to focus on the future that they lead us to, that they call us to, that they grow us in maturity toward. Love is permanent. Love is eternal. Love never ends. That's why love is superior to the other gifts. That's why these gifts that are exercised without love are worthless, he says. Think about God's love for us. 
Romans 5 tells us that, that God came for us, not because we were lovely, not because we were in this place where it's just like, oh, look at that one. I'll save, I'll save them. No, we were, we were sinful. Our deep affections for, were for the things for ourselves, for the things of the world. We, we delighted in the things of the world. We were at enmity, Scripture says. We were at enmity with God. And yet God had deep affections for us even in the midst of our deep affections for the world. God delighted in us even as we delighted in the things that were temporary. God was committed to our welfare and came. He took on the flesh that he created and he came and he died. So how does that relate to 1 Corinthians 13? Maybe the broader context of of chapters 12 and 14 on spiritual gifts? Just simply a reminder that spiritual gifts can be counterfeited. No spiritual gift is infallible proof of the Spirit's presence. But there's something that can't be counterfeited. The divine love of Jesus Christ. See, the, that kind of quality in love, that, that, that's a distinguishing mark or characteristic of Jesus Christ. That's a, that's so that becomes a distinguishing mark and characteristic of those who are in Christ. Consider just two passages where Paul uses the language of faith, hope, and love. Colossians 1, 3-5 says this, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. What about 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3? It says this, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love in the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's important for us to understand today that experiencing the divine love of Christ leads us to desire more of Him and His eternal glories. It makes us lose taste of the things of the world. It causes us not to focus on the temporary things that will pass away. So divine love affects our spiritual disciplines. It cultivates our spiritual fruit, and it empowers us in the use of the spiritual gifts. But there was a great display of the divine love of Christ, and that was on the cross for you and for me. See, that same Jesus is the one who sends this Holy Spirit to empower us as a helper. He is the one who laid down his life that we might receive eternal life. So greater than any gifts, the cross is love on display in divine perfection. Perhaps a way to help us think about this passage today is to actually replace the word love with Christ in a few different places. Consider how it might help us to understand the divine love that is freely offered to us through the sacrifice of our Savior. And consider even how it relieves this weight of pressure for us to try to accomplish something on our, on our own. It would read like this, Christ is patient and kind. Christ does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Christ bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Christ never ends. 
As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is Christ. And this is where I think it would be easy for us to to miss the main point today. Where we walk away thinking about what, what we've got to do or I've got to do to be more loving. Thinking this is something that you're supposed to accomplish in your own effort. And hopefully reading our passage today in this way and thinking of this as the love that we're offered through Christ helps us break out of that way of thinking. See, Paul is not calling us to some new form of moralism or legalism or or higher spiritualism or piety. He's calling us into a deeper experience of the relationship that we're called to in the love of God. And that's been proven to us through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. It's freely offered by Jesus Christ alone, and it's freely received by you and me through faith alone. See, it's the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand this more and more deeply. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to express the same love to others as the recipients of love that we can't express on our own. 